Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 and 46 through 55. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Uh, What a foundational text for us this morning as we consider uh, these stories in this Advent season. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Thank you. Uh, for being here with us this morning. We continue in a series in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke that we'll be going through all Advent season and then into the new year. Luke is writing, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, to Theophilus, a Roman unbeliever and skeptic. Uh, What's interesting is he might as well be writing to 21st century skeptics because the problems that we have with these stories are the same as the ones that the Roman... Uh, unbelievers and skeptics would have had as well. Uh, The overwhelming majority of people in our culture are what we might call materialists. That is, we as a culture believe that the physical, observable world is the only reality there is. Unlike more traditional cultures in past centuries, we no longer collectively believe in transcendence. We no longer believe that there's a power that exists beyond this world. And consequently, we no longer believe in the supernatural. And that makes these stories very difficult to accept and to believe because they are filled with the supernatural. Right? There's angels. 
and visions and dreams and barren women having children and this morning virgin women having children. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, let me say that I can sympathize with your doubts and your confusion. And part of the problem, to be honest with you, is, is we have allowed Christmas to become far too sentimentalized. I, I really believe that. It is quite, quite terrifying and unbelievable if, in fact, what we claim it to be actually happened. I mean, one of the commentators that I read this past week noted all of the strange supernatural elements in these stories, and he just made this statement. He said, here, unmistakably, is another world breaking into this one. And that's what we believe. We believe that at Christmas, God, the song we sang last week says it so well, left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth. That the cry of the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem pierced through the veil that separated heaven and earth and the kingdom of heaven broke into our world to forever change things. That's what we believe. And so I want to affirm how unbelievable all of this may sound. And to sympathize and to say it's okay if you struggle with this. But I also don't want to shy away from what Luke has to say here because Luke doesn't. He's not concerned at all to try to explain these things to his friend Theophilus. He states them as fact, as if to say, you wanted to know what Christianity is, this is what Christianity claims, deal with it. Christianity is supernaturalism. The bedrock of our faith, if you call yourself a Christian, the bedrock of our faith is, that, is the claim that a woman who had never been with a man had a child, but not just any child. Her child was the Son of God and God himself. Deal with it. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to deal with it. Because there's massive implications for that that we have to talk about this morning. Now, our theme this Advent is joy. Uh, The overarching theme is joy as we trace through the Old Testament story. And our joy is dependent upon this being true because joy is connected to hope. Do you remember this from last week? That the reason we can have joy is because God is always at work all around us doing a thousand things we're not even aware of. And nothing is too difficult for him. The text says it again here. Things are always more than they seem. And so we said we can approach even circumstances that are painful and full of sadness as if they are rather full of possibility because that's hope. Hope, according to the Bible, the Christian doctrine of hope is hope is living in the present in light of God's past faithfulness and his future promises. And Christian hope is anchored in the supernatural claims and the supernatural elements of our story, the possibility of the miraculous. That's why we have hope. Because truly nothing is too difficult for him. And so we're looking at this idea of joy and we're saying the first part of it is is it's connected to this, this, this statement that nothing's too difficult for God and so there can be hope. But this morning what we want to say is that sense of Christian supernaturalism not only creates hope, but it also creates amazement. That we should read these stories and we really should say, holy moly, right? What is going on? My grandmother would say, well, no, that's, that was a different thing. Never mind, I was going to go somewhere. Forget it. I just blew that. It, you know, we would read these things and we would say, 
that is, I, I don't know if I can even wrap my head around that. Because you see, the source of joy is hope, but there's a second part of it. And the second source of joy is amazement. To be amazed at God's work towards us in Christ Jesus. To stand back and say, who is like the Lord? Mary, we're told, in verse 29, is greatly troubled. Do you see that? That's her response to all these things. She's greatly troubled. Now, we don't usually aim for that at Christmas. You know, how was your Christmas? Well, it was greatly troubling. Well, you had a good Christmas then, didn't you? No. And yet, that, that's, what ama- that's what I mean by amazement. Wonder. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What, parents, should one of your goals be this Christmas that your children would say, this greatly troubles me? Because that's the idea of amazement. To be kind of shaken up, to be thrown, you know, f- for a loop. To have your life turned upside down and just stand with mouth open in awesome wonder at what God has done. So amazement, we're going to see... Amazement, the, the, the reason it's so important is that it leads to an obedience that, that communicates amazement. And what I want to say this morning is, is that is the measure of Christian obedience. That our obe- if we, we know we're inching towards the kind of obedience that God will call us to as people who belong to the story when our obedience is such that what it communicates is amazement at the things that we claim to be true. Amazement leads to an obedience that communicates amazement. And that's what we see here from Mary. I just have two things for us to look at this morning. I want us to see Mary's yes to the angel's commands and all that God is doing here. And then secondly, I want you to see Mary's song. And the reason I connect those two things is because her yes is enabled by the theology of her song. So her singing is connected to her being able to say yes to what God asks of her here. And so we're going to look at those two things. First, her yes and then her song, and connect them underneath the theme of amazement. So first, Mary's yes, okay? Look there with me at verse 26. The angel Gabriel is sent from God to Galilee to Mary. Okay, there's a parallelism that's happening here. This is the same angel that came to Zechariah at the beginning of the chapter. And the message of the angel was the same as to that of Zechariah, the birth of a son. However, their responses... At the, very, at the beginning, the responses were kind of similar, at least on the surface. But, in fact, the two respond quite differently. Zechariah's response. If you remember chapter 1, verse 18, how shall I know this? The problem is, is that it's full of cynicism and doubt and unbelief. Mary's response in verse 34 appears similar. How will this be? But hers is a statement of wonder and amazement and trust, and ultimately, obedience. Now, let's put this into a little bit of context, okay? Look again at the content of the angel's message, because it's important. Verse 31. Behold, the angel begins, and that's a clue. Okay, that's a clue, and if you're reading the Bible and somebody says, behold, it's like a clue that whatever comes next is, is out of the ordinary and, and often supernatural. It's something that you really ought to wake up and pay attention to, because it's really important. Behold, The angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's verses 31 through 33. And Mary says, well, how will this be? And then the angel responds with even more strange things. He says... Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of God. Okay, now we've got to make sense of all this. Okay, we're told first what is about to happen. Mary is going to have a son. And he will be the long-awaited son of David, the Messiah, who would rule over his people, deliver them from their enemies, like we read about this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. All the things we've been talking about as we've traveled through the Old Testament for the last year, this king that the people were waiting for, who would be David's son, promised in 2 Samuel 7, who would finally do all the things that David failed to do for his people. And here is the angel saying, this child that you will have, Mary, will be the long-awaited son of David, the Messiah. But then Mary begins to question, and we get a lot more detail. Verse 34, we're told he will be holy, which is difficult. It's a difficult word to interpret because it has a wide range of meaning. But here I think what the angel means is, is he's saying that this Jesus who will be born will be absolutely unique and unparalleled. That he would not share in uh, what was common to the rest of mankind. That his person and even his nature would be something completely different because he would not just be the long-awaited son of David. But here's the wrinkle. Here's what they didn't see in the Old Testament. He would also be the son of God which is a reference to his divinity, his origins, his heavenly origins. Okay, and this, so this is high Christology. I mean, this is kind of the bottom line stuff that Christians believe, that we get into the very mystery of the, 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 both the God nature and the, the human nature of the one who's come, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so Luke is just kind of diving right in. So we see what's about to happen, but he also talks about how it's going to happen. And he says this through a direct supernatural intervention. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will, over, will come over you, come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay, And so recalls Genesis 1.1, and in Genesis 1.1, at the founding of the creation, the Holy Spirit was said to be hovering above the primordial chaos. So the mention of the Holy Spirit here is meant as a reference to God's creative power. He created And brought life out of nothing at the beginning of the world. And he will work in a similar way in Mary's womb to bring forth life in conception out of nothing. But how? How? Don't you want to know? Like, how does that work? I mean, I guess these are the things they send you to seminary to ponder. Right? How does that happen? And Luke 1.35 is one of those verses that theologians and scholars love to dissect and speculate about. But let me just say, I think we're better off not pressing the details, not trying to figure out exactly what all is meant by the language, because I'm convinced it doesn't intend to communicate to us all we wish it would. How is this going to happen? The answer at the end of the day really is we aren't told exactly, and I think that's on purpose, because if we could understand it, if it wasn't a mystery, then we would be less likely to be amazed. See, the most important thing is not that we understand how all of this was going to happen, but that we come to believe what Luke wants us to believe, that truly nothing is impossible for the Lord. Right? Not even things beyond our comprehension or our imagination. So there's much in dealing with God that remains a mystery. And you don't try to explain mystery. You ruin this text if we come to it and we try to figure out these elaborate doctrines about how all this can happen. You don't, you don't honor this text by trying to explain it away. You honor it by marveling at it. You worship what's going on here. And so you read Luke 135, and you stand amazed. That's the point. 
And in being amazed at all these things, we very quickly run into the problem that Mary has. And it's this, that whenever you get involved with God and God's work, when you come in contact with what we believe to be true, the supernatural supernatural element of Christianity, it always leads you to a way of life that is outside of the social convention and norm. It's what happened to Mary. And she immediately gets it, right? She just gets it at the very beginning, and it's why she's so troubled. It's why we should be troubled too. The angel has to say to her, verse verse 30, Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And the reason why she needs to hear this message from the angel should be clear. This is going to be costly for her. Pregnancy outside of marriage was a capital offense for women in the Jewish culture of this day. And what was her defense? What was her defense? Okay, let's think about that. You know, my lawyer friends, think about it. What's her defense? It's okay, it's God's child. Right? Oh, oh, okay. Right? So her options were to be stoned or to be locked away in a psychiatric ward of a hospital. And, and, you know, what would Joseph think? Would he divorce her? If he did, where would she go? How would she provide for herself? I mean, massive implications for her here. This is going to follow her for the rest of her life. There would be a cloud of suspicion. There would be the rumors in the, the town of Nazareth that she, had to, you know, that she grew up in and had to live with for the rest of her life. And all of that makes her response all the more beautiful when you consider really what uh, this is going to cost her. When you come down to verse 38, you see this just beautiful um, declaration of her obedience, her submission to God, her acceptance of the calling that he's brought on her life when she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. There have been a couple times in my life uh, one was uh, in 2003 when we left the church that we were at here in the city uh, that I was serving as a youth pastor at, and we started a ministry that caused us to have to raise support and for me to travel internationally, uh, which was really hard, and, but we felt very called to that work. And then again, and I, I look back in my old journal uh, this past uh, week, in 2007 when we had begun in 2005 to plant Church of the Redeemer, but by 2007 we uh, thought that possibly God was moving and was going to um, move in a different direction and we were not going to end up planting or at least it was being so far delayed that our core group was beginning to maybe unravel and we were um, you know, very stressed and it was a hard time and we happened to be reading this, uh, this passage in our community Bible reading and I journaled about this, um, this verse at length and just really tried to put my heart and mind and imagination on what this might have meant for Mary and so I wanted to just share with you uh, my own, this is just kind of my own reflection about the times in my life where following uh, Jesus and making sense of these stories in my personal life led me to this moment like Mary has here. And, and so these are some of my words. I said, I journaled this. In times of pain and turmoil and suffering, if friends desert me, if people call me crazy, if they leave and forsake me, you never will. I rest in your sovereign care. Let it be to me according to your word. If it means I lose... If it means I'm left behind, if it means lost, what you ask of me is good. Let it be to me according to your word. Take away every rebellious impulse, every sinful desire, any sense of ownership over my life. Take away any deed I might possess to my rights, my comforts, to my pursuit of happiness. Every protestation, every arrogant assumption, strip me of my sense of privilege, my arrogance, my defiant self-determination, the reflex 
of self-preservation. Let it be to me according to your word. Without hesitation, without reservation, without question. Let it be to me according to your word. You spoke and the world came into being. Stars were born. You spoke and Lazarus came forth from his tomb. Your words bring dry bones to life. Let it be to me according to your word. I exist for you. You don't exist for me. I am your creator, creation. You are my creator. I am your servant. You are my king, my lord, my captain. You know better than I do. You love better than I do. You save better than I do. Let it be to me according to your word. You see, if our claims about Christianity are true, then to become a people of Christmas is costly. Uh, The gift of Jesus doesn't come wrapped in middle-class American evangelical wrapping. And these events are otherworldly, and the implications of them don't fit into the small, safe, comfortable lives we've crafted for ourselves. These are dangerous truths contained in these ancient memories. And to become a people of Christmas requires a response of us similar to Mary, some kind of dangerous obedience that takes you outside of the cultural norm. If there's... You know, we believe God came to earth. Like, that's like, you know, like, that's the most important thing that's ever happened. And we're the people that contain those stories in our lives. And so if there's never been a time when your faith has led you to a moment like this, and required of you a decisive yes like Mary's yes, then, beloved, you're not taking these things seriously enough. I mean, what are you willing to say yes to? If there's a limit to what you're willing to say yes to, if there are parts of your life that are off limits to him, you're not done wrestling with the implications of the Christmas story. And so we see Mary's yes, and it's startling, it's amazing, and it calls forth from us a similar yes, an echo of her yes, as we make sense of these things that we say we believe as well. But I want you also to see not only Mary's yes, but also Mary's song. Mary doesn't just say yes to what God calls her to. She sings about it. There's joy. Look at verses 46 and 47. It's marvelous. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's joy in God is the reason for her obedience. And so what's the cause of her joy? What does Mary learn about God through this experience that gives her such joy? And it's what she sings about. It's the content of her song in these verses. And there are two things, really. Her experience with the angels, changed her around these two truths. She's amazed at the way God works, and she's amazed at who he works for. That's what amazes her. So she's amazed at the way God chooses to work. She sings, verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She calls God mighty, or the mighty one, which is a common title for him in the Old Testament scriptures. He is a warrior God who fights on behalf of his people and delivers them from his enemies. He is a God who does great things for his people, who often displays his power and his authority over their enemies to save and to crush those who come against his people. But here, in what the angel has said to Mary, this mighty God full of strength and power and majesty is not coming to save through power, but through weakness. A child. The Almighty will become small, weak, helpless, the infinite contained within the finite, and that's what Mary begins to sing about. Holy is his name. Who has ever heard of such a thing? I am a huge college football fan, or at least 
I'll let you know at 1230 this afternoon whether I continue to be a college football fan or not. Never, that's when the rankings come out and all that kind of stuff. Never mind. Uh, and it's the time of the year when the, rap, when, when the season's wrapping up and coaches are being fired and hired and so forth. And so I've been paying a lot of attention, probably more than usual, because the strength and success of my team is somewhat dependent upon the struggles of a certain school that will remain nameless that has terrible taste in colors and other kinds of things. So I've been watching all these guys interview, and you know the way it works. You have a coach that proves to be successful as a coordinator who then gets a head coaching job at a small school, and if he proves that he can succeed there, then he might get a shot at a larger school, uh, and then eventually uh, get a shot for one of the big boys. And it's just a given. It's the way it works. So you're the coach at South Dakota State, for example, and then Michigan comes calling, and you don't pass up the opportunity to go to Michigan. Now, the assumption in all of this is that success on a smaller stage will always equate to success on a larger stage. And it's curious to me that for all of these guys, in their minds, in their minds, and it's just that segment, but it's the whole, all of us, in their minds, no stage is too big. I mean, nobody passes on the Michigan job and stays in South Dakota. I mean, you never hear of a coach who's been successful saying, I, I know I can be successful where I am. I'm, I'm not sure if I'd be able to do this on a bigger scale, so I'm just going to stay put here. Why not? Why doesn't that ever happen? So you have ESPN ran this thing the other day, this coach, Lance Leopold, who has been the head coach at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. His record there, it's a Division III school, his record there in eight seasons is 106-6. and He's won five national championships in eight seasons. And he just took a job at the University of Buffalo. Buffalo? Why? He's great at Whitewater, or Wisconsin-Whitewater. Why leave and go somewhere else? Now, you know, I get it. More money, all these things. He's off to Buffalo, then to a Power 5 school, and eventually to, an S- to the SEC or something, whatever. You can imagine. You can, can you imagine? Can you imagine a Division three coach achieving that kind of success, and when the job offers start rolling in, he says, you know what? I'm just going to stay here and be great here. See, one of the cardinal tenets of human pride and hubris is that no stage is too big. And so if you have the opportunity to move from a smaller stage to a bigger stage, from a small church to a big church if you're a pastor like me, or from mid-management level position to being vice president of the company or whatever it might be, when the opportunity presents itself, of course you take it. It's what everybody does. Everybody except the Lord God. For us, no stage is too big. For the God of the Bible, no stage is too small. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther coined the phrase theology of the cross to describe God's way of working in the world in contrast with the theology of glory that was so dominant in the medieval ages and medieval Christianity. And the theology of glory is the belief then and now that expects God to be strong and his followers are those that are blessed and successful by summoning all their strength to follow his laws without fail. And so God saves through power and we ascend to God to save ourselves and so forth. We should be expecting blessing and success from his hands and all these things. But Luther said he offered instead the theology of the cross because he was trying to make sense of the fact of the incarnation that God, who was mighty, became small, that he descends to us, that he doesn't save through strength, he saves through weakness, and this is nowhere more obvious than on the cross. See, God is not what we would expect him to be. He's not like us. For him, no stage is too small, and that has Mary exulting and rejoicing in him. She's amazed at the way he works. 
in the incarnation, but also its implications. If there's a certain way that God works that defies our expectations, then there's also a certain type of person he works for that's just as surprising. And this is what she begins to meditate on, beginning in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then he goes on, verse, she goes on, verses 51 through 53. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry. He's given good things to them and the rich he sent away empty and so forth. And the, ver- the verb tense here suggests a pattern. That this is not just in this particular instance. This is a certain pattern of God's way of working in the world. Mary is celebrating the new world order of Jesus Christ that, Christ that his birth would create that would include the reversal of current fortunes. The proud will be brought down. The humble will be raised up. That those who for now have to go without will be satisfied then and that those who have everything they need now will go without then. Jesus is turning the world on its head. Now, I want you to be careful be careful as we read these verses, because you see the assumption in, uh, in the ancient societies was that God had particular favorites, that God loved the powerful and the successful and the rich, and that he was against the poor and the needy. Uh, God doesn't have favorites, but what we've done now in our culture these days, we have, re- we have reversed self-righteousness so that we can look at passages like this and rationalize our self-righteousness. And so you'll hear people say, poor people and sinners are God's kind of people. So if you're successful or wealthy or just moral, then you're looked on with suspicion and God probably hates you. I mean, didn't Jesus love tax collectors and condemn the self-righteous Pharisees? Can I answer the question? No, he loved both. That's not the teaching of the verse. The verses teach this, that God's working in your life has nothing to do with your circumstances, your pedigree, your social status, or your moral standing. John Piper pastor in Minneapolis in a sermon on this text, he put it this way. He said, don't make the common mistake that because God is great, he's partial to great men. Or because God is exalted, that he favors what is exalted among men. Just the opposite is the case. God's holiness has expressed itself and will express itself by exalting the lowly and abasing the haughty. What fills Mary's heart with joy is that God loves to undertake for the underdog who calls upon his mercy. He's quoting scripture from a number of different places where the Lord says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's the teaching. It's not that God loves the rich and hates the poor or that he's for the poor and against the rich. God opposes pride in both the rich and the poor and he responds with grace to humility wherever he finds it. That's the teaching. And that's what amazes Mary most of all. That he is a God of grace. At the very beginning of the whole episode, in verse 28, the angel hails her. It's marvelous. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now we could translate it, it's probably better translated like this. Grace to you, O graced one. Grace to you, O graced one. The Lord is with you and she is troubled. Why? Why is she so troubled? And the answer comes out as we continue to read. Mary has trouble believing the angel's words. Greeting, O favored one. Me? Me? How could God favor me? I'm a nobody from nowhere. And that's the lesson that she has to learn, that God is a God of grace and mercy. That he doesn't look preferentially upon one type of person over another. That he doesn't work for a certain type of person. He works for all of those who know they need help, no matter whether they're rich or poor, strong or weak, even religious or irreligious. What good news 
So let's apply this very quickly, and then we'll come to the Lord's table first. Who then is saved? See, there's an application of salvation in the Christian doctrine of salvation. How do you become a Christian? We believe in a righteousness that is by faith, not in a righteousness through works of the law. And so it's not the quote-unquote righteous that are righteous. It's those who know they aren't that find righteousness. That's the mystery of the gospel. And it's when you turn away from that. Remember, we were uh, were talking about this last week, a couple of us. When the Galatians turned away from that truth and they began to exert all their moral effort to try to get God, you know, get in on God's favor and his love and to get him to look at them and pay attention to them and bless them and they turned to morality and religion and rule keeping and all these kinds of things, Paul had to write to them and say, what's happened to your joy? Joy comes from knowing that righteousness comes from God and it's those who know they are without it that find it. But not only that, how does God work? How does God work? What, is this, what do we learn about here in, in the way, the story and the way that God works? And it's something like this, that in the times when you feel most helpless is when he goes to work. When I feel good and it seems God is, you know, I feel good and it seems God's most at work, he often is not. But when I feel bad and life is spinning out of control and falling apart and God feels most absent, that is when he's often most at work. So the thing in your life that makes you feel strong and competent. The problem is that's when there is the most of you and the least of him. But the thing in your life that makes you feel weak, the part of your life that's hard where you're really struggling, that's where there's the least of you, and that means there can be the most of him. So what is it in your life that that has you ready to give up? Listen, wherever you're ready to give up, that's where he's ready to go to work. See, both in the incarnation and in the cross... The Lord Jesus Christ laid aside his strength and became weak in order to help the weak. He gave away his wealth and became poor so that he could make the poor rich. He became nothing in order to save all of the nothings of this world. Does that amaze you? Does that amaze you like it did Mary? And does your obedience to Christ communicate that amazement? If not, it's not Christian obedience. It's not Christmas obedience. Make the measure of your obedience that it communicates your amazement in Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Does God's grace amaze you? If not, repent. But if it does, like Mary, it will put a song in your heart. Like her, you will sing. And like her, you will be able to say to the mighty one who has done these great things for you, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Let's pray. That is our prayer, Father. To echo Mary's prayer. To say of whatever it is that you would ask of us this morning. Behold, we are your servants. We are the ones when we were plunged in darkness and despair. You came. The light of the world has dawned. You have come to us in our brokenness and sin to redeem and to heal and to restore. When we cried out to you in our agony, you did not turn your face away, but you concocted the marvelous plan of salvation in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, born to die upon a cruel cross for the sins of mankind so that all who would put their faith in you and turn to you might find life and salvation and restoration. And so in the light of such good news, would you work by your Holy Spirit, cause us to be amazed so that we might echo Mary's yes with our own so that the gospel might ring forth in our city, that all might come to hear and believe and rejoice along with us, that 
the joy and mirth you would put in us would set a whole city to laughing if it would were to burst forth. Oh, come, Holy Spirit, cause it to burst forth, burst forth in us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, because the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity past, at the summons of the Father, said exactly what Jonathan said, that he, you know, Mary's yes is an echo of his eternal yes. I am the Lord's servant, may it be done to me, according to his word. And he came to suffer and to die because of his work, his work of obedience on our behalf. Now the Father will look at you. If your faith is in him, the greeting that he gave to Mary is the greeting he would give to you. And it's the greeting of these words, really. Grace to you, O graced one. That's you. That's the promise of this benediction. Grace to you, O graced one, the Lord is with you. Jesus' yes makes it possible for me to raise my hands over you with that promise. And it's that promise that's the very power that then causes you to be able to go and say yes. That's the way the gospel works. It's to receive the words of this benediction. Grace to you, O graced one, the Lord is with you. And go uh, and, 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 be, and be the one that would say yes to whatever the Lord would call you to do. Stand amazed at him and then offer your obedience to him. Uh, that's the call upon our lives. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.